you came this morning, it's not only St. Patrick's Day, but you came on a great Sunday because uh, we're going to be talking about sex this morning. Come on, somebody. Yeah, all right, okay. Heard some growls out there. That was weird. No. Um, and and the, the, the title this morning of the message as we continue in our worship this morning is this. It's Sexual Jesus. And um, kind of a stunning title maybe, you know what I mean? But I think that um, much like the, the picture kind of illustrates is sometimes in the church we just kind of want to like just like brush up everything in wide and just kind of like, hey, let's avoid some topics and oh, you know what I mean? Like this, this is something that's kind of taboo. But this morning I, I think it's important for us to, to dialogue a little bit about sexuality in the church. And, you know, sexuality is nothing new for the God of the universe uh, as a creator of sexual beings. But I thought it'd be helpful as we start off this morning um, just looking at a few, uh, like, the sexual language that exists throughout the Bible. Because, um, as many of you know, uh, you read certain parts of the Bible and you're like, this is... This ain't even PG-13, you know what I'm saying? So, hey, there's a list up on the screen that I want us to kind of just give us kind of a, a foundation of some of the sexual language that exists throughout the Bible. Um, and, and it's pretty intense, you guys. So let's look at a few things just to kind of set a good foundation. Um, first, I would say, we'd say this, is that Israel, um, God's people, right, are many times in the Bible described as God's lover and wife. Um, and we got verse references there just so you can prove me. All right, so check it up. Look it up if you brought your Bible this morning. How about this one? After being disobedient, God accuses Israel of spreading her legs to foreign gods. A lot of verse references there. Whoa. Ooh, are the kids in church, kids' church this morning, right? Um, next one. The church is called the bride of Christ and will finally join together with her husband, also known as the final consummation, right, um, as the marriage supper of the lamb. So we got a lot of sexual language. Next, next slide. A couple more. Kind of help, helping us build a foundation. The Song of Songs, if you ever read it, is one deeply erotic book from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 8. I love this morning we sang that song, You Won't Relent, which is actually based out of the Song of Songs, right? And then lastly, uh, a mark on the male reproductive organ, also known as circumcision, operated as a sign of God's covenant people. So uh, we can't escape the topic of sex, especially in church, because it's all over the place. And we know that the human race would not exist without sexuality. Come on. But it's interesting to see the progression of the topic of sex throughout church history as well. And I think this is important as we kind of build a theology around sex this morning. Um, many early church historians and philosophers had different views on sex and how we kind of related to this topic when it came to the church. How about this? Uh, origin who's actually one of the most important philosophers and theologians of the early church, he actually castrated himself, cut off his male organ, fearing his sexuality would hinder his spirituality. Really interesting. Ambrose, the church leader in the 4th century, he affirmed the celibacy of Origen, saying that virginity was a higher and purer form of spirituality. And he, in his ministry, encouraged married priests to stop all sexual contact with their wives interesting. Jerome, the theologian and historian of the fourth century, claimed that the Virgin Mary had to have abstained from a sex life even after Jesus' birth because of his association with sex and its utter sinfulness. Augustine, the famer, famous philosopher and theologian, struggled in the early years of his marital sex life, believing any form of pleasure during sex was sinful. Really interesting how this 
topic of sex has become kind of historically taboo throughout the years and especially throughout church history. And it's interesting because people throughout history have sought out how does sexuality fit or does it not fit when we start talking about spirituality, what it means for us to be human beings connecting with a higher power. And luckily, we have these guys called reformers in church history, John Calvin, Martin Luther, being a couple of them. They rejected the idea of celibacy, abstaining from sex, right? Being more spiritual and affirmed marriage and marital sex being gifts from God. And all the married people said, amen. You know what I'm saying, right? Um, but I'll, I'll say this. is a really helpful definitions, and I want to I highlight a book this morning. If anybody wants to take a deeper dive on the topic of sex, great resource, great book. We've had it in our library for a couple years now, but anytime we talk about kind of sexuality, human sexuality, this is a great one. Deb Hirsch, Deborah Hirsch, uh, wife of uh, missiologist Alan Hirsch, big fan of his, uh, wrote this great resource for the church called Redeeming Sex. So um, really great uh, topic and conversation about sexuality and spirituality. Um, so I would highly recommend this if you want a copy. I think we have one left in there, but we're, we're, we have a sign-up sheet as well to get you connected if you want to take a deeper dive. But Deborah Hirsch, I love it. In her book, she defines the two words, spirituality and sexuality, such like this. Spirituality, she defines longing to know and be known by God on a physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual level, right? And then she defines sexuality as longing to know and be known by other people, right? So she makes this definition. And for us, and for Christians, followers of Jesus, this should be two sides of the same coin. We think about God's greatest commandment, and Jesus affirms this uh, with, with people who ask him, being loving God and loving people. Spirituality and sexuality being one affirmed together. And so here's what I know is that if these ideas are linked Spiritual people should be, really, some of the sexiest people on the planet. Come on, somebody. Jesus, fully God, fully flesh, come on, somebody, is the perfect marriage between the idea of human sexuality and human spirituality. Christians should be super sexy people. Elbow your neighbor and say, you're sexy. Oh, people did it. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's getting weird in here. It's getting weird. Okay, cool. The church should be a quote-unquote sexy place. Come on, somebody, right? So the question this morning I think we should, we should kind of really address first and foremost is this question is, is Jesus sexless, right? Because he was holy. He never dated. He never had sex, never got married. And in many cases, we have created Jesus in the image of the early church philosopher Origen, right? That's how we view Jesus. But Jesus, according to our previous definitions, is this perfect marriage between sexuality and spirituality. Jesus is the supreme of sexuality. He is the supreme of sexy. But there's a lot of guilt and shame when it comes to sexual expression, especially related to the church. God himself actually created you and your sexuality. It's embedded within you and who you were created to be in every aspect. And a proper sexual ethic doesn't deny the fact that we are, good, we are sexual beings. What it does is develops a framework of between good and bad sexual expression. We cannot deny our sexuality. We cannot 
act as if it does not exist because we as human beings were created as sexual beings. But what God gives us a framework for is a framework for good sexuality, good expression. And when there's good, we have to assume there is what? Bad. All sins are equal before God, yes, but they have an internal dimension to their consequences that become carried with us. There's a, there's a big emphasis on, on our sexual behavior throughout the biblical narrative because it's with us. It's who we are as sexual beings. So God places a high standard in terms of our sexual ethic. And despite contrary belief, what happens to your body actually happens to you. You can't just cut it away. You can't just throw away with events or things, and God forbid, things that have happened to people related to their sexuality. Uh, in the house this morning, who, who's, a, who's a fan of school dances? Anybody? Anybody like to get your groove on? No? Okay, I liked dances, okay? I enjoyed them. Uh, a little bit awkward, but how many of you guys know when you get uh, r- raging hormones in the room, uh, male and female, younger people, um, typically at school dances, they didn't just let people loose, like lock the doors, and let's just let the teenagers just like have fun amongst themselves. But what was required at school dances were these adult supervisors, also known as what? Chaperones, right? Chaperones became a really wise idea when it came to male and female, younger people with raging hormones, being there to facilitate uh, uh, an environment that was helpful. And I'll never forget it. It's like like the, the song that, that was big. I remember like when I was in middle school and like, you know what I mean? Like, this is like, this is out of control, right? Just like freak dancing. Like, that was the thing during, during my day, right? Like, it, it got bad. So you had to have people there to literally, like, split people up. Because it's like, what's going on here? Like, there was a song that we used to bump to called uh, Too Close by Next. And if you know that song and you know the song I'm talking about, um, at the time, I didn't realize what the song was actually talking about until later in life. And I realized, oh, my gosh, the topic of that song is absolutely inappropriate. How did people get away with playing songs like this? It's such a, a for young people at a dance, Right? But here's what I believe. Just in the same way, it's wise to have chaperones for young people. This is what I believe when it comes to our sexuality. We need chaperones as well. We need a chaperone. We aren't left up to our own devices because if we are, things can get messy. Things can get really hurtful. And here's what I believe this morning is is our sexuality needs a chaperone. Our sexuality needs, needs Jesus. He deserves to be the chaperone for our sexuality as the creator of us as human beings. Is Jesus sexless? Absolutely not. He's the bridge to understand our spirituality and sexuality. He's the mentor. He's the perfect image of the invisible God based on an image of God we were created as, sexual human beings. And when you choose to integrate your spirituality your pursuit of Jesus with your body, sexuality and all, including all of its desires, all of its pleasures, your life will feel more alive, more whole, more integrated as a human being. It's, you look at the life of Jesus, and his life was beautiful. He lived a perfect and beautiful life. And, and here's what I'll say as well. It was a testament that singleness did not equate to him being lonely. But actually, Jesus lived a single, perfectly, sexually fulfilled life. He wasn't lonely or he didn't exclude or enjoy deep levels of intimacy. He actually did. 
but it included a life without actually having sexual intercourse. So this morning, I just, as we've laid a foundation, there's two main topics that I want to look at this morning as we continue to kind of build this theology and this topic of sex around how God views sex and how he views as we invite him to be the chaperone of our human sexuality. Can we pray this morning as we continue? Lord, we come before you and and we lay it all down at your feet. And I know for some, maybe this is an uncomfortable topic. For some, maybe this is a curious topic. For others, uh, maybe this is a processing point for you in this season of your life. But Lord, we want to receive all you would have for us. We want to place you as the author over our lives. and, And also, we understand when we're left up to our own devices, many times we can become very hurt-filled people. So, Lord, we, we invite you as the author to, to be the chaperone of our hearts and our minds and our bodies this morning. And, Lord, would you, would you help us? Would you help redefine areas that need definition for our lives? In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. The, the first, first kind of part of this where I really believe that Jesus needs to be the chaperone of our lives would be the topic of romantic love. Romantic love. Romantic love, uh, anybody ever seen this show, Married at First Sight? Um, yeah, obviously Callie watches it. Obviously we watch it, right? Uh, there's a show, Married at First Sight. It's like on, on Life, Lifetime or whatever. Um, and it's a show that's basically like our modern-day version of arranged marriage. They, literally, it's a, a show about they take couples and they literally match make them together, and the first time they meet one another is at the altar. Um, and it's such an interesting social experience. You're like, who would do that? But literally every season there's a handful of people that – go through this kind of social experiment and legally get married, and by the end of this like season, which I don't even know how long it is, they make a decision of whether they're going to stay married or get divorced, right? But it's interesting because in a divorce-ridden culture, prearranged marriages actually have statistically higher success rates than divorce. Whoa. But we live in a culture where romantic love becomes the indicator in the Predicative, predicative tool that's not necessarily bad, but can be so dangerous if it never transitions to attraction. And the awe of covenantal love, a love that faces the realities when initial romance fades. Because it's interesting. We, we are built on the culture of, you complete me. The emotions of how we feel, the romance of our emotions. But how many of you guys know, especially married people in the house, that romance fades. It does. doesn't mean that you can't keep romance as a part and a piece of human sexuality and expression within the confines of marriage, but covenantal love looks a lot different. You know, Frank Falasa, he's the author of a book called What is Love? The Spiritual Purpose of Relationships, puts, kind of frames romantic love like this. We'll look at this quote this morning. He says this. He says, it is said that love is blind And certainly in this state of romantic love, we are temporarily blinded to any of the normal human frailties and shortcomings that our beloved may have. Or if we do do see them, we think they are part of the charm and are convinced that they are the nearest thing to perfection, that they are the one, and that this feeling of love will last forever. In fact, we are so convinced that we start to reschedule our whole future based on this new relationship. What we don't realize is that we've been drugged by nature. Romantic love is a biochemical trick that nature plays on us in order to get us to reproduce. hey Once nature has achieved its goal, once we have mated and maybe reproduced, the romantic love evaporates. The drug wears off, 
and we are thrown back into our normal state of perception. We look again at our beloved and think, what did I ever see in you? What is that deformity on your chin, right? <laughs> this is real life, though. We want to be the romance. We want to carry the romance, and we want to believe that romance lasts a lifetime, that things never get hard, that love never becomes sacrificial. Romance and romantic love, it can, it can get you down the aisle. But here's what I believe. Only covenantal love, a higher form of love, can actually keep you together. It'll carry you to the death do us part. And I love how Frank Velasa, he uses this quote, he mentions our perception being affected. Because how many of you guys know that love is, many times romantic love, is so deceiving? You know, C.S. Lewis, he said this, Another quote up on the screen this morning. C.S. Lewis, he says, Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful, even meritorious. And it's interesting because I've met people, I've had people kind of brush up against my life who were the church-going people or the church staff people that found their way down a line of deception where the person ends up engaging in an inappropriate relationship with the church secretary, right? But many of us, we know these types of stories. And we know the types of justifications that people make when it comes to their emotions and their romantic love being the barometer of how they actively engage with God and the relationships they currently have as they move forward. They abandon their spouse and children to start a new life and somehow justify it and make it okay with God. How often do we hear these types of stories? Think about Proverbs 31. It says, charm, charm is deceptive and beauty does not last. With our core beliefs about God, are we willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with romance? Because here's what I, I believe. Romance wins a lot of our battles on human sexuality. It drives us. It leads us many times. It deceives us. A romantic attraction shouldn't be ignored. It's a part of our sexuality. But here's what I believe. It needs a chaperone. It needs one where love becomes redefined. It needs one much like the love illustration of Jesus, the perfect love that was displayed on a cross. Not a love that loves when it's convenient. Not a love that bases when emotions are high, but a love that says, I will die for you. I will lay down my life for you, no matter what. A love that's expressed through utter selflessness and sacrifice. You know, that's how much God loves us. And that's the bar that he sets for our lives in saying, do not be tricked. Man, there's nothing like the honeymoon season, the phase of dating, where, man, the emotions are running high. But God knew. He knows that 
the biochemistry of how we exist and how we function as human beings wears off. And his sexual ethic is one that's built to last. It's one that says, stop, stop looking at yourself, but choose sacrificially to look at the needs of your partner, spouse, those in your life. And I believe this as we continue on. Romantic love was kind of the first one, but I think the other part of our, the chaperone part of this conversation happens with our, our gender identity. This has become, once again, another kind of taboo topic. But I think it's interesting because we, we, we talk about gender identity, and uh, how many of you guys know that expressions of masculinity and femininity have changed drastically over time? Pink is for blue, or pink is for girls and blue is for boys, right? What if I was to tell you the opposite is true? What if I was to tell you, documentation shows that back in 1918, the general rule was that pink was for boys and blue is for girls. Pink, because it came from red, was thought to be a stronger color and therefore more suitable for boys. Blue is seen as more dainty and delicate and therefore more appropriate for girls. And what one culture seems or deems masculine is not at all consistent throughout cultures. There's always new expressions of what it means to be masculine and feminine. And it constantly is changing over time. Meaning this, most people do not fit into one color. But many of the time our culture breeds the type of direction that says no. Let me frame what masculinity is and let me frame what femininity is. And many times it's not based or acknowledged through the way that God sees and defines it, but it's based simply by our cultural constructs, by how our culture defines it. It's so heartbreaking for me to see so many people in pain that have to endure what it feels like to not fit into one color. I think about it even, even for myself, right? I grew out my hair a little bit, but what does our culture tell us? Eh, long hair, traditionally, that's more for girls. It's more for females. Females have long hair, right? We can go down the list, the long list of ways that our culture has created constructs to say that's masculine and that's feminine. And we can't deny that men and women are different. Uh, absolutely not. Men can't have babies. We know this. But just because a woman can give birth biologically does that mean she should always be at home and not have a career socially? And our times are changing. It's very interesting to see this, but many male and female social roles are built upon the need. Historically, let's think about this. Where did this come from? Many times, female social roles were built upon the need for women to be protected during pregnancy in prehistoric societies. Makes sense. Being pregnant was a large portion of a woman's life as the continual childbearer, and because of the being in this vulnerable state, women were perceived as the weaker sex, while men were seen as stronger as the protector and the provider. Culturally, for us, women have equal rights and freedom socially, and it's also encouraging to see women's equality, equality bursting forth in nations and areas where the gospel of Jesus is present. There's a relativity Relativity in cultural standards, if you look and you survey places where Christianity has taken off, where women's rights have increased, which is a huge praise God moment. Men and women are different, 
because what would be the point of God creating both? But first and foremost, we share a common humanity, which means we carry more things alike than different. Rather than focusing on gender differences that may or may not be grounded in reality, right? Many times culture Let's reflect and appreciate the ways we reflect sameness, unity. You know, I love it in First Peter. There's a verse we're going to look at, and this is in the context of marriage, the marital relationship, this mutual submission, this not that the man gets to dominate and be the leader of the household and do whatever he wants, but one that's confined and relative to the mutual submission of God taking a place of posture of serving his wife. And there's this mutual submission and illustration that we see in the beautiful covenantal marital relationship the Bible gives us. But right after Paul, or Peter, is writing, he talks about this. He says this, finally, all of you, be like-minded. All of you. Everybody, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Like, there's, here's the specifics of what a marital covenant looked like, but let's just, get, let's just talk about generic, let's just talk about everybody for a second. Let's talk about the things that we're united upon. We're those that are like-minded to be sympathetic, to let love be the one that leads us. And once again, not a romantic type of emotional love, but one that is defined by Jesus' posture. You know, obviously biological sex is unchangeable. You're born a certain gender, you can't change that, or you can try to change that. You can. But we are born a specific biological way. See, the biology is one framework, but gender many times in the way that gender is expressed throughout cultures and society looks different. You know, it's a lot more fluid. It's not as bare bones and as clear black and white as many times our culture would like it to be. I think about the Apostle John. Let's just think about this guy in our cultural constructs of how we kind of define traditionally masculinity and femininity, right? You know, John was known as the disciple Jesus loved. When John referenced himself, it seemed to be an opportunity to share about his intimacy with Christ. He was always bragging about himself and how much he loved this other man, Jesus. He rested his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. For some of us, culturally constructed masculinity would say, that's weird. He stayed with Jesus at the cross when the other disciples fled. He was cast in a gentler mold, which many people would label as effeminate. Even medieval paintings depict the Apostle John in very effeminate ways. And he expressed his love in a way that many others would label unacceptable behavior for a man. Very interesting. You know, Mary... Stuart Van Leeuwen, in her book, My Brother's Keeper, did a word association research project and compiled a list of adjectives, including what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Some of us are familiar with these. Love, joy, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The subjects were to classify the words as masculine or feminine, and the fruit of the Spirit were largely classified as what? Feminine. But how many of you guys know the fruit of the Spirit do not come in pink and blue? These are universal human qualities. These are universal fruit affected by the recipients on the other end relating as human beings. 
And it's unfortunate because when our culture leads us, there's many abusive outcomes that affect us. A pastor in North Carolina came under fire publicly when his sermon went viral. He instructed fathers how to deal with their effeminate sons. He said, dads, the second you see your son dropping the limp wrist, you walk over there and crack that wrist. He continued, man up, give them a good punch, okay? You're not going to act like that. You were made by God and to be a male, and you're going to be male. Isn't it interesting to see the definition of masculinity? One that's not based through the way that God sees it, but strictly based on a cultural perception constructed outside of a God who created sexuality and even expressions within the context of gender. As a father, I feel so convicted thinking about my little guy, thinking about his hobbies, thinking about the things that he's interested in, and wanting to pour fuel on the fire the exact person that God has created uniquely for him to be, not based on of constructs that people want to create about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman in terms of our hobbies, in terms of our style, in terms of how we express ourselves through the fluid reality of what it means to be gender, a specific gender and how that's expressed in our society. Jesus chose to reveal himself as male, but I think it's, it's helpful for us to not get so caught up in his gender and more caught up with the fact that he was completely secure in his expression of that particular sex. Jesus was completely secure as the perfect human being. He expressed what it meant to be for him as a male. You know, Jesus at the inauguration of his ministry, he's tempted by the, by the devil. And what does the devil say? He says, turn these stones into bread. Kind of interesting, right? Come on, use that masculine power over those objects, Jesus. He's like, nah. Throw yourself down and let the angels save him. Come on, be flashy. Show it off. Show it off what it means to have authority and to have power. Jesus doesn't give in. Come on. The devil tempts Jesus. Have dominion over all the kingdoms. This hunger for universal control, all classically masculine, and many times how our culture defines it, all resisted by Jesus. Power, fame, money, many times masculine topics, culturally constructed of what it means to express ourselves as males, for the, the males in the room. Jesus, he's a warrior. We can't deny that. He's the greatest warrior. And he expressed his authority not through power, not through using his godly authority and lording it over other people of what it meant to be male. But he was a warrior that was a servant. He served. He sat with those who wept. He told other men how much he loved them. You know, it's just an observation. It's no wonder many times the church, we see a lot more females than males demographically within the church walls. 
because there's something culturally constructed that creates a barrier for us to say, it's hard for me to admit that I would love another man, this man Jesus. But it's a barrier that's got in the way from a cultural construct of what it means to be masculine or what it means to be feminine. But there are no surprises for God. We need to leave behind the cultural expectations of gender, especially when they are not in line with the model and the work of God's kingdom, the government that he sees, the government that rules and reigns supreme over any other human government, the government that informs us and lets us say, we don't need to be all in with any human construct, but we get to be all in with a government that rests on his shoulders. We need to express grace to those who express their gender in ways that don't meet our stereotyped masculinity or femininity. Or maybe according to us, what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. Our gender identity should never be ignored. It's a part of our sexuality, but I believe this. It needs a chaperone. It needs a chaperone. No matter where we find ourselves on the spectrum of gender and how that gets expressed, this morning, we need a chaperone. You know, as we kind of conclude this morning, there's a guy named Bob Goff. He's an author. He's a speaker. If you've ever heard him speak or, or read this guy's work, I mean, this guy loves people. Man, he just, he just inspires me. He's, he wrote a book called Love Does. And he made it really practical about how to love people better. I think for Christians, you know, this can, this can be really helpful for us to just practically get down and say, you know, what is it? how can I love people on a practical level? Like, how can I love people better? He said this in his book, Love Does. He says, how do we love better? He says, start by loving people that you think are creepy. Maybe that's the homeless man on the corner. You're creeped out by that guy. Maybe that's the person that doesn't dress like you. I creeped people out with the jeans that I wore the moment I walked into this church. There are people not sitting in this congregation anymore simply because of the jeans that I wore. You laugh, but it's truth. Kind of tight. They are. Those with a different sexual attraction, for some of us, are, it's creepy. It creeps us out. We're led by fear more than we're led by love. Those who have made different sexual choices than you, you think are creepy. You distance yourself. You create walls and barriers, holy ones that are justified according to your standards rather than the standard of love that God has defined. For some of you in the room, you, maybe it's your first time this morning, people inside the church have creeped you out. Church people are creepy to you with good reason. As we take the white paintbrush and we try to cover up certain topics like sex, we try to get out of touch with the reality of the fact that we're created as sexual beings. But I, here's, here's, here's what I just believe through the practical application here this morning. Many of us are going to fit into kind of one of these categories. Number one is this. Have you sacrificed God's covenantal love for romantic love? For some of you, your vision for love has been one of romantic love. And it keeps, you keep falling on your face because of it. You keep getting let down. You keep dating the guys because you're, 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 you're literally driven by emotion. You're the man who wears his heart on his sleeve and can't seem to keep a relationship. That's because your vision for love is probably one that's fueled more by your biochemistry than fueled by one that says, I'm going to stay. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to be here. That might be you this morning. Some of you maybe have felt like you'd never fit into one color. God sees you. 
affirms you. He believes in you. He's created you. And for you to ever feel like you've been ostracized by labels and constructs people have created, you can push that to the side and be affirmed by the God of the universe this morning. That he is your creator, that he sees you, and while people have tried to box you in, you do not fit into one color. Because that is not the way that God sees you. That's the way that a culture has been brainwashed to see you. And lastly, maybe you've hurt people that you've deemed as creepy, and you know it. Because you've said these people are creepy, I've chosen not to be friends with them, I've chosen to avoid them, I've chosen to passive-aggressively cut them out of my life. And God's saying, bring them to the table. Bring them to your table. This morning, I just believe that each and every one of us, when it comes to our human sexuality, we might fit into one of those categories. And God's knocking on our hearts. And he's saying, do not define what I've created based on your own perception. But allow Jesus to begin to chaperone these areas of your life. Where you've cut people off, where you've labeled people, where maybe you've given up on the world because you're saying, nobody understands me. The first step is inviting Jesus in to become the chaperone of our sexuality. Say, God, you get to define it. Jesus is saying, follow me this morning. And for following him this morning, it's going to be defined in maybe some different ways. But I just truly believe this. There's going to be a next step in our hearts for each and every one of us. I'll say this as we, as we take a next step. You know, for, for, for being a chaperone of our sexuality, here's what I know when we become followers of Jesus. It's not just sexuality. It's, it's everything. It's this thing of called being a disciple of Jesus. And... Um, Many times when we realize that we are no longer going to be all about the kingdom of myself and we're going to be about the kingdom of God, there's a massive transition that takes place. One where we begin to define things not on our own, once again, human constructs, but bigger and broader. We love power. Many times as humans, we don't love service. So I just want to say as a next step for some of you in the room, uh, we have great things. The reason we have things on the church calendar coming up is for us to say our, our lives aren't our own. And one of the practical ways happening today, I know it's Hey, St. Patrick's Day. It's also a beautiful day. So, hey, if you hang out with us today at 1 p.m., we're going to be uh, having lunch together. If you want to stick around, I know this isn't second service, but we're going to be doing our neighborhood canvas for a great day of service today at 1 p.m. And what a great next step that would be for some of us in the room that are saying, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And sometimes that just means practically saying, I'm laying down my time, my life, to literally go serve other people. And we're going to go hand out flyers to just invite people to say, hey, we'd love to serve you in a few weeks. Um, so that might be a great next step for you this morning as we engage. And once again, we marry together what it means to be human and what it means to be, uh, what it means to be spiritual people. Amen. And Jesus does that so perfectly. But first and foremost, it takes us inviting Jesus in and saying, be the chaperone. Be the chaperone of it all. Can we pray this morning?